All right, back to the text of Job, and we pick up kind of where we left off, uh, starting in verse 8 of chapter 1, and then that's being the setup or the transition for all of the bad stuff that happens when it all goes south in Job's life here in a minute. So let's start with Job 1, 8 through 12. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears the Lord and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So this is where we talked about a few weeks ago. Thanks a lot, God. Uh, Satan <laughs> pretends, at least, not to have noticed Job and his godliness. And so God draws attention. Haven't you seen my servant Job? And that is what brings all this calamity upon Job. But there is a positive element, an important positive element, of God drawing Satan's attention to Job. And that is what Job represents. Job's life is a demonstration of godliness. It's, it's, a, it's proof that a sinful fallen person can be not just redeemed, saved, but also changed, made into the kind of good man that Job is, and that's been described over these first few verses. And so God says to Satan, look, you tell me there are no true worshipers, that there's no real faith on the earth to be found, and look, here's one. Now, Job's not the only one. Now, granted, at the point where Job lives, there's not a whole lot of people on the earth. <laughs> and so he may have been one of very few, but he's not the only one. This is in the time of the, the patriarchs. And he says, this is a true worshiper. So what are you going to do about that? What is your answer for the fact that someone believes that I'm worthy of worship? Satan, of course, will have none of this. Satan is the wandering cynic, as he's been described. And so Satan doesn't believe God, and therefore Satan doesn't believe Job. When Satan sees goodness, someone obeying God, someone worshiping God, what Satan always assumes is that there is an ulterior motive for it that there is something self-serving, that there is something that can explain why a person would worship God. It can't just be that God is worthy of worship. There has to be another reason. And so in verse 11, Satan challenges God. And he says, look, stretch out your hand, take away all this greatness from Job's life, the family, the money, the, the things that make you happy, the good circumstances, Take all that away from Job, and then what you'll see is that Job's heart is just like everybody else's. It's selfish. It doesn't really care about you. It will do what it, sorry, do what it wants to do. Uh, the, the formula is the one we talked about from the prosperity gospel. If you do good, you will get great. And what 
what Satan is saying about Job is, take away the great and see if Job still does good. Because Satan says that he won't. You'll see the same heart that everybody else on earth has. You'll see a total lack of interest in God or in God's goodness. The other thing we see right at the outset of this conversation, though, is that Satan is powerful. He's going to be able to make these things occur through, as we'll see, both natural and supernatural means. Satan has a, a lot of power here. But Satan is not all-powerful because he cannot use his power. He cannot do any of these things without God's permissive decree, without God saying, okay, go do this, and here are the parameters. Here are the boundaries of what you are allowed to do and not to do. And notice Satan doesn't even attempt to work outside of those boundaries. It's not even possible. It's not like Satan is restrained by some sort of self-control or honor for God's authority. He is physically unable to do something that God does not permit him to do. And Derek Thomas in his commentary makes a really good point about this for the way we should think about Satan, which is that Satan can only terrorize you through fear. What Satan uses is the fear of what he could do. Because Satan can't actually do anything. He's not the executioner in chief. He can't do anything apart from the will of God and what God intends for your good, which we'll get to later. But that means when we fear the evil one, we're fearing fear. We're, we're not fearing that he could do something that God wasn't aware of or that God doesn't intend, as we talked about last week, that's outside of the uh, the permissive decree, the will of God. Satan is God's tool. He holds no power independently of God. And that's why, as we said last week, God is ultimately responsible for Job's suffering. He's not responsible for sin. He's not responsible for evil. God doesn't do the sin. God doesn't do the evil. The calamities that come upon Job are, are bad. They're not sin. How is it sin for God to burn down somebody's barns? It's not that's not sin. It's calamity. Satan does incite and provoke and commit his own sins. God's not responsible for those. I'm sorry, God's, God's not responsible for the, the sin, the evil, but he is absolutely responsible for Job's suffering. If he did not want it to be, it would not be. And that's the tension that we talked about all last week. What's the most shocking thing about the scene that we just read? God brings up Job for Satan's consideration. Satan makes what is a cynical, but I think all of us cynics at heart would say reasonable counterargument, which is, yeah, Job loves you. Look at all this stuff. If I had all that stuff, I'd love you too. So Satan comes up with this plan and what is, what's the most shocking thing about what happens here? It can't be the plan Satan comes up with. It's that God says, okay, yeah. yeah, sure, go do what you want to do. Just don't touch his body, but yeah, do whatever you want to do. It's that God gives him permission to do the plan. Yeah. It's that God accepts, and again, all of this is within God's will. It's permissive decree. So we're watching it play out as if it's a conversation where God doesn't know what Satan's going to say next. And it's, I mean, that's just the way we have to, God has to condescend to us. Otherwise, our minds couldn't grasp these things at all. God knows exactly what's happening and all of this. But, 
but that God would go along with this, so to speak. That God would say, yeah, that's a reasonable accusation. You're wrong about Job, and we're going to prove you're wrong about Job. But it's possible. The thing that you're suggesting is, in fact, possible. And that's why in the book of Job, you're dealing with a character in Job who does not deserve to suffer the way he's going to suffer. And this is an important point to make because I think a lot of times people read the book of Job and we're trying to let God off the hook more than God needs to be let off the hook. God does not need us to protect him. And so one of the things people will say is, well, you know, Job is not about a specific sin that brought about his calamity, but everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so in that sense, Job deserved whatever calamity comes upon him because we all deserve calamity. And that's one of those things that is theologically true and completely irrelevant for this story. This story is going out of its way, every step from the narrator and from God, to break that connection for you, that there is any connection between Job's behavior and Job's calamity. Any connection. That's why it spends the whole beginning three times, twice from God, that he is good. God will call him my servant multiple times. Yes, it is true, big picture, that Job, like all of us, is a sinner in need of a Savior, and he's found a Savior, and even so, he's still not perfect until the day of his glorification. That is true, and not at all what this book is about. And so when you hear someone teach Job, and, and what they run to is, well, yeah, Job kind of did deserve it, because we're all sinners, they're utterly missing the point of Job. They're making a true theological statement that we all deserve wrath, but how hard would this book have to work to convince you that's the opposite of the point this is trying to make? That's not the doctrine that is on trial here. The doctrine that's on trial here is where is wisdom to be found and what, what in the world justifies the suffering that we see in the world? And the answer is going to be the glory of God. The answer is not going to be that you're a sinner too. So you see what I'm saying? That's not theologically wrong, it's theologically irrelevant for this book. And that's a really important point. The, the scandal is that Job does not deserve to suffer, and the only reason he does suffer in the context of the story is that God gives Satan permission to do it. That's the setup for this book. I see some quizzical looks, so questions... <laughs> Like what about what about my friend who says like God's like a puppet master like he knows what's going on he gives permission he knows Job's going to come back to him in fact but I hate to do this to you but I have to refer you to last week's lesson because I spent the whole week on it yeah yeah it is the the what is the will of God and how do we use that term you know it is it and it's the critical question to get right in our minds to see what's coming. but yes, I have to I have to point backwards, All right. which I'm also happy to point. <laughs> is, is this archetypal of of what things are like? You think Satan, Jesus is in this? No, no, I'm talking about is Satan inciting God against us when he's working against us? Is the way he works against us? By I think I'm going to have to point you back two weeks in the lesson because I know you weren't here either. Um, yes. And we talked about that. Yeah. that the Satan is the accuser. So when you see Satan seated at the conference table of the divine council and you figure out what his job is, his job is to go around the earth looking for faith and to accuse true faith 
as false faith. And that is exactly what he does to us. Um, great questions. Just, I, I gotta, uh, I gotta update your YouTube feeds. Okay. So going back to what you were just saying. Um, so if that is the point, then why didn't God just kill Job and, or let Satan kill Job, attack his body, and then he would go? Because if Job was dead, how would we see if Job's faith was real? Exactly. So that's, that was like what you were saying a few minutes ago. Would be, that could be an answer to. Well, the... Yeah, the point I'm trying to avoid is somebody who would say, um, Job didn't deserve this from a specific sin, but he did deserve it because he's a sinner in general. Right. right. And that's true and irrelevant, not the point of the book. It's an escape from the very strong argument the book is trying to make. And you're right, if, if God had just killed him, then none of this gets solved. Uh, we, we completely lose that. So the scandal is that God... Uh, Ash says this in the in the book that we're using the uh, the joke well, commentary that we're using in this class. He says the scandal is that the supreme God does give Satan permission. And what we've got to think about is this: if you put the glory of God first, if the glory of God is truly the most important. Thing in the universe, it makes absolute sense that God would give permission here. It's mind-blowing on one level, <laughs> but it's mind-blowing because we think Job's comfort and Job getting what he deserves, a good man should get great things, we put that first. We put our sense of justice first. We put a lot of things at the top of the list to say, that's why God should have said no to this. But the whole book is going to be about what God puts at the top of the list, which is the glory of God. And so the accusation Satan makes is no one other than you thinks you are worthy of that kind of worship. No one. God, you are the only one who thinks the whole world should revolve around you. That's what Satan is saying to God. And God is that, and that charge been, has been made publicly. It was made to us in the writing, but it was made in the heavenly council of the of the the supernatural beings. How could that question be definitively answered without a demonstration? God Himself doesn't need it demonstrated. God. God knows and God doesn't it's not like God gets a little insecure that maybe Satan's right and nobody does love him God doesn't have any of these problems that we deal with but in order that his glory would be known he says to Satan okay but don't kill him don't go that far because my glory needs to be known we need to see this um, and so for the sake of his creation, for our sake, for Job's sake, for the sake of Job's friends, for the sake of everyone who would read the book of Job, in order that his glory might be known and displayed to the world, God takes the challenge, so to speak. God decreed the challenge. He willed the challenge so that his glory could be displayed. Who's got First uh, Peter 1, 6 through 9? <clears throat> In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, 
You have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Is, is that about Job? Because it sure sounds like that's about Job. <laughs> right? Fire. Trials. For the testing of faith. Not just for Job's sake. In fact, not primarily for Job's sake. Job's faith is not tested primarily for the sake of Job. We will deal with Job later, and God will have some things to work on in Job's sanctification. But the setup for this is that Job's faith is tested for God's sake, or at least for the sake of his honor, that his glory could be visible to the world. So if we get really mad at the situation in Job, how could God do this? The good question to ask is, which do we think is more important? Job's happiness or God's glory? Job's stuff or God's glory? Our sense of justice or God's glory? Because when we, we don't, we don't have to like suffering. We're crazy if we do like suffering. But if we accuse God of wrongdoing or evil or running a bad world, because there is suffering, I guarantee you we're putting something above the glory of God in our priorities list. We're saying there's got to be something more important than this. And what we mean is there's got to be a way for you to be glorified that I like too. That's what we mean. We're putting our preferences up there on equal footing with God's glory. Uh, Chris Ash says, when Jesus returns, the fact that a Christian has gone on trusting and believing, even though all the blessings has been removed, and he has suffered severe trials, this will prove to the universe that another human being considers God to be worthy of worship simply because he is God. That's the first Peter text that Justin read, and that's the book of Job. What's being proved here is that there are humans who believe that God is worthy of worship, not because of what we get out of it, but simply because he is God. And then we'll find out, we know, but you find out the only way that can happen is by the power of God himself, because human beings in their own strength can't even do that. It is all for the glory of God. So let's stop there and make sure we have clarity, answer any questions before we move into the wisdom of Job being tested. Yeah, maybe this is going to be unpacked, but like, how do you practically put the glory of God first? Yeah. Mm. <laughs> that last week's lesson too? No, that's uh, next week and the week after and the week <laughs> after that. And no, it's a, that's a, yeah. It's one of those things for me, and I'm interested to hear from other more sanctified people in the room what works for you. Uh, for me, it works a lot from the negative. It's one of those things that I can really tell when I'm not putting God's glory first a little bit quicker than I can tell when I am. I can tell when I'm grasping to take control of every situation because my outcomes could be the only good outcomes. I can tell when I'm treating people transactionally as if they're an object to be used for my purpose rather than an image bearer of God 
if he has his own purposes. So I can tell when I'm getting it wrong. <laughs> and then I sort of motivate myself to, okay, the not doing that <laughs> is what puts the glory of God first. Other thoughts on that? Other things you all have seen that help you? It's one of those traps, like, how do you know you're humble? It's not when you say I'm humble, right? Like it's it's that like the moment you're like, oh yeah, I'm glorifying God completely, and all of it, like I'm putting His glory first. That you should start to wonder whether you're actually God's glory first. It's that I just try to be more humble than you. <laughs> Small one, short one. I always think it's I don't really know. I mean, you haven't suffered like Job, right? So. How do you know? I mean, when you hear really awful things, you think, I hope that I would. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, That's the line. I hope that I don't get tested. I'll that way. My, really, my friend Mike Parker, sad. when we're on our Civil War trips and we're at Sharpsburg and they've got a place called Artillery Hell where there's yeah. just nonstop. One of the famous lines from that moment is something like, it's a test we all hope we would pass and never hope we would yeah. take. And it's, yeah, you look at Job's life and you feel very similarly. Uh, I struggle enough with my puny amount of suffering. Um, And I do, I mean, even in this room and you among them, I see people who God has given what I would consider to be far more difficult challenges, far more suffering than I personally have experienced. And I I do uh, appreciate how God uniquely equips people in faith for the suffering that they're going to bear. Because I look at it and I think, well, I couldn't. And in one sense, that's really true because it's not mine. It's not mine to bear. If God were to give me some of that, he would also give me what I needed to bear it. But it is appropriate to look at somebody else's and be, it's weird to say, encouraged by the way they handle the suffering the Lord gives them because it's, it's his graces being manifest in their life you know, you don't want to, uh, it's probably not super encouraging to tell them a whole lot, but it is a, it's a very encouraging thing to see. I like that. That's a good, uh, you know, that, that God equips you in the suffering that you go through. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That could be a very much improved. Now. Yeah. And you know that. People that that totally takes them away from their faith, you know, um, and what we would have to say theologically was they had no faith. Right. They had the appearance of faith and not its power. And so when the trial comes, I mean, that's the parable of the sower and the seed, right? right. When the trial comes, it's choked yeah. out. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, the popular, I think it's a Southern expression, but maybe it's just an American expression. You know, God never gives you more than you can bear. Well, that's absolutely nonsense. Yeah, the whole point is God gives you more than you can bear. Right. And then in faith, he gives you the grace, his grace, his power, which is sufficient to bear it. Uh, don't nitpick people when they make that expression because no. probably what they mean is the second yes. thing, but it's just not a real precise way to say it. Uh, 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 on the selling the charybdis right that we have to watch out for is the, uh, on the Rome. Does anybody know what he just said? Yeah. <laughs> These two do. Do any non-philosophy majors know what he just said? Uh, on the Roman Catholic side, specifically, I think they fall off on the other side of the horse so you got the prosperity people on one side yeah right and it's the if you're not suffering are you like you can, yeah you can't really be showing faith. any faith right yeah. like if, if that's what satan's attacking yeah that's a good point and it's interesting because i saw that too even in the 
sort of charismatic Pentecostal church, which you would think, because it does have a strong tendency toward prosperity gospel, but then they had to have some way around it when there's not prosperity. And the accusations that people are being sinful only go so far. So then you would go into, well, you know, it's, it's spiritual warfare, which I'm going to talk about in a little bit. But everything they experience, even the consequences of their own actions, is the evil one coming against them. And it's, well, yeah, okay, but sometimes you make bad choices and you get bad results. And that's uh, taking responsibility for your own godliness. Um, yeah, and the, the Roman Catholic idea that we need to suffer to be united with Christ. And so we create suffering. We create, that's, I mean, penance is the artificial imposition of suffering. The idea of penance is it's not enough to be sorry for your sin or to turn from your sin. You need to suffer for your sin. And if your sin doesn't create natural suffering, some sins do, but for the sins that don't, we will artificially add suffering, which is penance. And so, yeah, that's the backwards view, too, of to follow Christ, there must be suffering. And then you think, well, well yeah, but at the word level, that's kind of true. Well, yeah, the prosperity gospel at the word level is kind of true. Good people should get great things generally in God's world. It's the, it's the perversion, the twisting of these doctrines that create these these extremes. All right, let's talk about what happened. What does Satan do with God's permission? This is the, the things that will test Job's wisdom. Uh, Derek Thomas has a beautiful description. He says, peace. So remember the description we got prior to the heavenly council is Job with his wealth and his popularity and the love of his family and the celebration of birthday parties, and the sacrifice on behalf of them. And it's just this warm, loving, peaceful environment. And so Dr. Thomas writes, peace is shattered by pain. It's a devastating picture of how trouble comes into Christian lives. It comes unannounced and unsolicited. It shows no respect for persons. And I would remind you again, because it's very important that we not forget as we encounter Job's calamity, that Job does not know what we know. Job was not privy to the heavenly council. God goes silent on Job for 38 chapters. Job doesn't know about the council scene. He doesn't know about this conversation with Satan. He doesn't know why any of this calamity has come upon him. And so then just in this rapid fire, gruesome madness, we get calamity after calamity. And it's a pattern of human evil, natural disaster. Human evil, natural disaster. So who's got verses 14 and 15? There came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck them down, struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. This is roving bands from Arabia, and this suddenly safe world is turned into a bloodbath. They're just slaughtered by these marauding bands. And then natural disaster. He's got verse 16. 
While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven, and burned up the sheep and servants, and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. The fire of God is uh, Hebrew language for lightning. So lightning sparks a fire and burns everything down and kills. And then more human evil. Who's got verse 17? While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. This is a premeditated, a planned attack from the Mesopotamians to steal Job's herds and murder whoever was in the way. And so this, the one-two punch of verse 14 and verse 17, is the end of Job's wealth. He has no more stuff. Now another natural disaster. Who's got 18 and 19? While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in your oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. So this is the end of Job's family. Verses 1-2 punch of verses 16 and 18. The disaster is complete. His wife will come up in a minute. But broadly speaking, his stuff and his loved ones are gone. Four quick punches to the gut, and it's all gone. So many aspects of Job's life touched by pain. And the question is, how will he respond? And we zoom out a level and we ask, well, what would it take to respond one way or the other? And we can imagine 9,999 ways that you could respond with anger or absolute devastation, cursing God and dying, giving up, giving up on faith, giving up on God. This wasn't the deal could be a reason. This is too much pain to bear could be a reason. We can imagine all kinds of reasons why in Job's response to this, he will not be okay with it. And you can only imagine one reason that Job would respond well and be okay. And that is that he puts the glory of God above everything else. That's it. That's the only one we've got. And notice, Job is desolate. He takes it all in, blow by blow. It's not until verse 20 that he can respond. This happened at just the blink of an eye. And all all eyes of the reader or the hearer are supposed to be on how will he respond? What will he do? Satan made an accusation about what he would do. God said, no, he'll do something else. Now, this is the moment of truth. What's going to happen? Who's got 20 to 22? Then Job arose and tore his robe, and shaved his head, and fell on the ground, and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all of this Job did not sin, or turn God with wrong. Did Job say, This is fine, and I feel fine? Did Job say, Well, at least I have my health. Did Job say any of the platitudes that people in the church tend to say when terrible things happen, trying to pretend that terrible things are not terrible? No. 
Job acknowledges this is grievous. He, all of his actions are grief. He tears his robe. He shaves his head. He falls to the ground. This is, in the ancient world, absolute signs of grief. This is grievous. This breaks my heart. And he worships. His emotion, real, valid, in response to the circumstances, does not outweigh what he knows to be true. And so they go side by side. His emotion, his grief and sadness, doesn't drown out what he knows to be true. It doesn't change his mind about what is true, which is what Satan said would happen. It exists side by side with what he knows to be true. And so whichever side of the horse you fall off of, the more emotional side or the more logical side, notice that the proper response is that they are together. It is not, no, God is glorious, and so you're not allowed to feel sad. And it is not, this is awful, God can't be in control. It is both and. And so he responds with faith. And the only way he can do this, Justin asked earlier the practical question, which I think is a good one. How does one prepare for a moment like this? Which we hope we would never have to be prepared for, but we have to be prepared for. Job had a right understanding of the things of earth before this ever happened. Job rightly understood uh, that his children were a blessing from the Lord and seemed to be good and have faith, but needed petitions on their behalf. He needed to pray for his children. He needed to teach his children that they belonged ultimately to the Lord and the Lord would do with them what, what he will. Job knew that his stuff was a great blessing to be enjoyed. It was not his identity. It was not what mattered most. And because these things of earth, Job did not see them as entitlements. I deserve these. These are mine. When they are taken away, he's able to say with great sadness and grief, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You will not develop that theology of stuff in the midst of suffering. So you better develop it beforehand or it will make the suffering more bad, badder, worse. <laughs> not an English major. Um, if your view of the things of earth is wrong, in the good times, it will be really wrong in the bad times. It won't get better. And so what we see is that Satan, so far, is wrong. Job responded the way God said he would. Job's love for God, his honor of God, his worship of God, was not contingent on his stuff, the blessings that God had given him. And so Satan is wrong. But he's Satan, so he's not done. Um, I don't think I gave out one through seven. Uh, we'll, we'll read it piecemeal a little bit. Any questions about that part before we go to what happens next? Would you also want to add, 
understanding things of earth, but also understanding the character of God ahead of time. Hmm. You're less likely to question. That's right. Yeah, I wasn't meaning that was the only thing you needed to understand to get through this. That's a good correction. You certainly, I mean, I would say you have to understand the character of God requires that his glory be at the top of the list and that it should be for us too. And that's just the hardest thing for us to get in our heads. We think that God is on some kind of, we would never say it this way. We're way too proper. But we think on some level, we're sort of on an equal plane with God. And what we think is right should be considered equally with what God thinks is right and what we think is best and what we think is justice and what we think is fair. And we stand in judgment over what God does. And the heart cry of this book is, better not do that. I mean, I hate to spoil the end, but there's going to be this really big speech by God in the end where he says, don't do that. You don't stand in judgment over me. Because let me mention a few of my accomplishments for which I did not need your input. <laughs> everything. Everything that ever happened. He doesn't need you. Um, so yes, we've got to understand the character of God. We've got to understand the glory of God being the top of the list. And with, uh, insofar as stuff is considered, we've got to understand the role of, of the things of earth, of the stuff. They're to be enjoyed. They're not entitlements. They're not our identity. Uh, they are from God. The Lord gives the Lord takes away, and as Job will tell his wife in a moment, we bless God in either case. We'll get to we'll get to why that is probably next week. But let's plow a little more ground here. Um, so at the beginning of chapter two, the first seven verses, Satan responds, and it is it's very intentionally an echo of scene one of the first exchange between God and Satan. We get some additional information, but it's it's structured by the writer to hearken back to that conversation. So Job, uh, God will twice call Job my servant. Job is called blameless, upright, God-fearing, penitent. Job maintains his goodness in the face of disaster. All of this is the, the backstory to this repeated scene, and then Satan responds as we would expect. He responds with skepticism and unbelief. And just pause there for a minute, because that's a worthwhile question to ponder every now and then. What's what's required to convince unbelief that it's wrong? Is it more information? Because Satan got more information. Satan got the example of what Job did in this specific occasion, where Satan had just said, there's no way Job will do this. Satan comes in with more information than he had before, more proof, more evidence, and Satan says, oh, God, I was totally wrong. My eyes are opened. You are really glorious, and everybody loves you. Nope. Satan says, nah, I don't know about that. Skepticism and unbelief are not an information problem. They're a heart problem, and certainly the, the heart of Satan uh, is, is not able or open to belief. So Satan makes his accusation again that Job looks like someone who fears God, but it's just transactional for Job. And so you have this echo of the first scene. Satan cannot believe that anyone would honor God just because he's God. And Satan's got a vested interest in this. He's not a dispassionate party. He's he's not an uninterested uh, player in this. He doesn't want God's glory proved correct. He, he's, why are they in this situation? What God is trying to do is 
display his glory to the world through Job. Is that what Satan wants? Is that what Satan's trying to do? No. Satan's trying to destroy Job. <laughs> Satan wants Job destroyed and ruined. He wants Job to curse God and die. Back to Jake's earlier question, is this what Satan does today? Yes. The way we talked about how what I what I pray could be written on my tombstone one day, that I am a trophy of God's grace. Satan wants you as a trophy in his cabinet of people who cursed God and died. That's what he wants. And so he accuses and he he plots and he schemes. He cannot attack you or do anything that God does not design for your good. But this is what Satan wants. So Satan says, no, you got it all wrong. This is very transactional. And how does God respond? It's more, it's a little bit more unbelievable than the first one, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> what, yeah, what does he say in verse six? Oh, well, you still have them. Do what yeah. you want. <laughs> says in verse six, behold, he's in your hand, only spare his life. Because Satan says, look, I mean, okay, stuff is one thing, but what if he hurt? What you have is one category. What you are, your own experience of life, is where it gets really personal. That's what will put you to the test. There's stuff the way I'm using it. Your okay. Yeah, your relationships. Yeah. The things you love, which are both human and non-human, the things that bring you joy. Um, yeah, it's yeah. calling calling family stuff is a little callous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that's kind of you. But, also. but what you have, including family and relationships, yeah. is one bucket. Yeah. But what you are, your own life and experience of life, Satan is saying, that's where it's really at. That's what's put to the test. And God says, okay, go ahead. Don't kill him. Go ahead. Why? Is it because God hates Job? <laughs> Does God have some grievance or vendetta against Job? And this is why it's so important to me, why I keep beating the dead horse, that you not let God off the hook here. That you not say, oh, it's because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and so Job did deserve this in some sense. No, the whole point of the narrative is that whatever sense you're thinking Job deserved it, you're wrong. Because this is not a story about what Job did and did not deserve. This is a story about the glory of God and the role of suffering in the glory of God. And that's hard for us, but it's it's mostly hard for us. I'm going to speak intellectually. It's hard for us emotionally because sadness is hard. Grief is brutal. I get that. But it's hard for us intellectually because we don't think God's glory is that glorious. And we don't necessarily think it believes to be at the top of the stack. Not if it creates this suffering. Not if it makes my life hard. Not if it causes me this grief. God's glory might be great, but nothing's that great. And the point of the book is, there is one thing that is that great. It is the glory of God. Oh, that's why we hate this book. We love this book. I think that line that's really hard to kind of um, digest is the one, although you incited me against him to destroy him. That's a, such a powerful line to think that Satan incited God. God allowed it, right? Right, and God, and, and 
God takes the responsibility for Job's suffering. Not for Satan's evil, but for Job's suffering. God says, I did that. I did that to prove a point. And now Satan's denying that the point has been made. And so we're going to go through this again. Um, You know, this is, I'm going to quote from Chris Ash's book in a second. You know that you, if you were God, if you were running the universe, you know that you wouldn't have let Satan do it the second time. You know you wouldn't. You would have put an end to this torture. You would have looked at the dead children and the burned barns and the stolen flocks, and you would have said, no, enough is enough. And Chris Ash writes that the Lord disagrees with us, must teach us something very deep. And he's right. That's what the next 40 chapters are going to be about. Is the fact that the Lord disagrees with us on whether what he does in this moment is right. And Job will start out strongly believing this is right. And then he'll get worn down with some unhelpful counselors along the way. So Satan sets out against Job. And this time he has permission to touch him. Verse 7, so Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And Ash writes, he's already made Job's mental, emotional, and spiritual life a torture, and now he torments his bodily existence so that at no moment of day or night can Job ever forget his pain. And who's responsible for that? God. And so... Now, you think about where are we supposed to be as the reader encountering this book, the Holy Spirit writing these words, the Holy Spirit giving us understanding of these words, carrying us along in this story. I said at the beginning of the first section, we were supposed to be very clear in our minds that Job is a good man and had great things, but a good man. And now where we're supposed to be is how could God do this? We're not supposed to be arguing over the technicalities of, well, did God actually do this? Or Nope. The book has done everything in its power to make it clear to you, God did this. This does not happen if God does not want it to happen. It's supposed to be very clear in our minds. This is not about what Job deserved. Put aside those thoughts. What's supposed to be in our mind are not all of these technicality, easy way out that we're looking for, it is supposed to be the gigantic, horrific question, how could God do this and still be good? We're not supposed to wrestle with God's power. We know he has the power to do it. We're supposed to wrestle with how could he do it and still be good. And as of Chapter 2, verse 10, we have the answer. Job gave us the answer. And I don't know about you, but it's going to take me more than two chapters to believe it. This is not a moment where I'm inclined to look at it and say, yeah, his goodness is obvious. What's wrong with you, ingrates, that you can't see the goodness of God? Oh, 
because <laughs> I read the first two chapters. What were you doing? But we'll stop there. Next week, I want to, we'll do a little bit of a rabbit trail. Uh, not too long. We'll come back to Job very quickly. But on the what does Job teach us about human suffering, our human suffering, that is what connections should we draw from that suffering to this kind of suffering we have today. Uh, and we'll start that next week. So we're done. Thank you.